Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk rock. Begin. Reagan. Palestine. Terror on the airline. Ayatollahs in Iran. Russians in Afghanistan. Wheel of Fortune. I feel lucky today. <laughs> Hello again and welcome to episode 110 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast based on Billy Joel's pop opus that set the syllabus to school us on the headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm kind of wondering how we got to where we are today because Billy seems to think it might have something to do with Wheel of Fortune. Katie, is this our first game show reference of the entire song? Well, I think it is, although we have alluded to the quiz show scandals of the 50s. There's been some kind of television reference, but Wheel of Fortune, game show. I can tell you that as a youngster watching television, I found that game shows were tense. <gasps> I didn't. They made me a little anxious. Oh. There was a, there was d- too much uh, jeopardy involved. Excuse the pun, because that is another game show. So I kind of steered clear from those. What about you? Well, Katie, I was familiar with Wheel of Fortune because there is a slightly watered down, anemic British version. Um, it's but- always the way with the <laughs> British versions: hamburgers, milkshakes, and game shows. <laughs> and then, Katie. I travelled to America uh, one summer to stay with a distant relative. So the diaspora from Ireland, as with most diasporas from Ireland, spread across the globe. Some came over to the UK, and that's where my family come from, and some went over to California. So I went, I went to stay with my Auntie Babe, who at that point was in her early 80s. Wait a minute, Auntie Babe? Yeah. Babe. Don't make any comment about my age of relative and the Babe thing, please, Katie. She was a lovely woman. Um, <laughs> and what would happen when I first got there, and before I went off exploring, and other parts of California was that I would sit around on her sofa with her in her home south of San Francisco and her and her friends would come over have TV dinners which was an entirely new concept to me didn't have those in Essex and watch Wheel of Fortune and did the sofas were they covered in plastic? (laughs) It's like you were sitting alongside us Katie Well, Katie, I um, am very excited about today's guest. Um, This may be one of the most perfect guests we have had in the entire run of We Didn't Start the Fire. Adam Needef 
is a Wheel of Fortune super fan. He has written, Katie, not one, but ten books about game show history. <laughs> he is a researcher and consultant for the Museum of Plays National Archives of Game Show History. Adam, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this and have been since I first got the invitation. There is something I would like you to do, Adam, before we start speaking, and that is to reach behind you and give something that you have in your room a little turn for us. <laughs> that sounds suspiciously, Adam, like a wheel of fortune. Yes. My birthday present to myself when I turned 39 was I kept a promise that I made to myself when I was four uh, <laughs> and reached out to some very talented people in upstate New York and commissioned a Wheel of Fortune for myself. It is a living sized, uh, living room sized Wheel of Fortune. It's about two feet wide for use for when people come over here and we have game nights. So we play board games, we play video games, and then at some point during the evening, we will pull out the wheel and play Wheel of Fortune together. Well, I have so many questions uh, about everything in your life, but one thing that I have to just seize upon is the fact that you made a promise to yourself at the age of four. <laughs> so you, you were in the cult, a cult of one, or no, a cult of many, as a toddler. This yeah. is how long you've been gripped by this game show. Wheel of Fortune is a very good gateway drug for game show fandom. <laughs> it's a bright, colorful, spinning thing, and there are bells and buzzers, and there's a puzzle board and I, I think I got a head start on reading. One of the things that I remember from childhood was that I was always ahead of the game with reading and I think that came from Wheel of Fortune and I think Wheel of Fortune sparked a lot of enthusiasm about learning to read and getting better at reading because watching it on TV you saw a use for it. If I know my letters and if I know how to put them together to make words, I can win money. <laughs> One of the first things that you can understand as a child is winning money is good. So, yeah, Wheel of Fortune is a very good way to get into game show obsession as a pastime. And that's the story for me and for a lot of others. You got into reading and you got into capitalism. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, so describe what actually happens in Wheel of Fortune. How is it played? Wheel of Fortune is hangman with a wheel. Uh, three contestants play. There is a word puzzle concealed on the game board, and all you can see is how many words there are and how many letters are in each word. And when it's your turn, you spin the wheel, which has different amounts of money on it, or it has bonus prizes, or it has penalties like lose a turn or bankrupt. And when it lands on money or a prize, you claim that money or prize by calling out a consonant that's in the puzzle. And if you call a consonant that's not in the puzzle, you lose your turn. You can also buy a vowel if you have enough money to do so, and buy a vowel is the odd contribution that the show made to the English language. In America, you have to pay $250 for a vowel, and the idea is that it's kind of an investment. Uh, you have to give up some of your money to get a vowel, but a vowel can be extremely helpful in figuring out what certain words are, and solving a puzzle is how you bank all the money you've racked up. You don't actually win all the money you've accumulated until you've solved the puzzle. There's a little bit of risk along the way if you keep spinning because of those penalties, lose a turn, and the worst of the worst, bankrupt, which is you lose your turn and your money is wiped out. And uh, that's how Wheel of Fortune is played, and that's how they've been playing it since 1975 here in the U.S. Right. Adam, where the hell did this game come from? <laughs> this game came from a guy named Merv Griffin. Uh, and Merv Griffin is just one of those fascinating people who you look at and you think... 
I can't believe somebody like that existed. Merv Griffin was a singer and he was able to parlay being a singer into being a game show host on television and being a game show host. He was able to parlay that into being a talk show host. And it was a very successful talk show, by the way. It ran for something like 25 years. And then from being a talk show host, he began investing his money into real estate and became a mogul. He dealt primarily in luxury hotels. And he became a billionaire in a matter of years from his real estate investments. But the funny thing is you have this billionaire who's hosting a celebrity talk show while running a hotel empire. And he just kept dabbling in game shows while he was being a billionaire real estate investor. He would keep coming up with ideas for game shows. He created a long list of shows. Only two of them were really hits. But the thing is, they were the two most successful game shows in the history of television. So two was really all he needed. One was Jeopardy. And the other was the one that uh, we're talking about here today, Wheel of Fortune. The origin story of it was Merv said it came from two childhood memories. One was his family used to go on long road trips and he and his sister would play hangman in the backseat of the car to pass the time on just a piece of paper. The other memory was going to a carnival and watching a barker spin the, the wheel at the carnival to give away prizes. And he said he was just mesmerized by watching the spinning wheel. So he mashes up these two childhood memories and he turns them into a game show. And he showed the idea first to NBC. There was, at, at the time, in uh, 1973, when he first showed it, uh, there were three major networks in the U.S., which NBC, ABC, and CBS. He showed it to NBC, and the head of daytime programming for NBC at that time was a woman named Lynn Bolin, who was infamous in television at the time because she was very bl- brash and very blunt. Uh, if you ever watch the movie Network, Faye Dunaway's character is based on her. And she had a very strong vision for what she wanted in game shows. This was 1973. And at that point, this was the first generational change in television. The people that first launched television in the 1930s and the 1940s were retiring. And people who had seen television and known television their entire lives were now in charge. And Lynn Bolin wanted her game shows to be brighter and livelier and younger. So Merv gives her this idea he has for Hangman with a Wheel, and she suggests contestants take the money that they win and they use it to go shopping. Her idea is we fill the stage with prizes of all sizes. It could be as small as a lamp or as big as a boat or a car. And then after you solved a puzzle and you've won the money, you go shopping immediately and you buy prizes on the stage. So they shot a pilot. And the pilot was called Shopper's Bazaar, and this pilot absolutely sucks. It's very unwieldy. It's very confusing the way they're executing what seems like a pretty basic idea. And they kind of went back to the drawing board and said, let's see what we can do to fix this. One of the unsung heroes of Wheel of Fortune is a set designer. His name is Ed Flesh. And Ed Flesh makes two changes that make it work a little better, which is... He makes the puzzle board bigger and he adds some glitz to it and he makes it so that the letters light up when they're revealed by the contestants. And it's just very eye catching and very interesting to look at. Then the other change he makes is instead of having the stand up wheel like they have at the carnival, he makes it a horizontal wheel that the contestants have to bend over to spin. And it was just a gorgeous looking thing. And they streamlined some elements of the format and they made it work better. They changed the name to Wheel of Fortune. NBC loved the pilot, Merv was happy with it, and they put it on the air in 1975, and we have had it ever since. So it sounds like they were very successful in identifying the fact that the players, and then by extension the viewers, want to be subsumed in this immersive environment. They want to be in this world. Can you give us just kind of a, a quickie overview of the history of game shows and their hold on the public, and particularly in America? 
Yeah, game shows came along here in the 1920s. Uh, funnily enough, the origin of it was it was done to sell newspapers. There was a newspaper in Brooklyn that held what were called current events bees, and they would sell a special issue after they had done their current events bee in which they printed all the questions and answers. And they always sold extra copies of the paper whenever they printed the questions and answers from these current events bees. So they began putting it on radio to drive up interest in the newspaper. And that was the first game show. And uh, we've had them ever since. There have been different eras of game shows. There have been different things that have come and gone. Panel shows were very popular in the early 1950s. And then you had the big money quiz shows that led to the scandals in the late 1950s. Celebrity game shows became very, very popular in the 1970s. Word games became popular in the 1960s. And so it's a genre that's always evolved and always been there. And the reason it's always been there is, number one, they are deceptively inexpensive to produce. People think because there's a big cash prize, it must be costing the networks a lot of money. Really, the big prize is the only big expense the show has. There's your talent fee and your prize budget, but it's always on the same set. There's no huge cast of supporting players. So it's just your host there and your announcer and maybe your model. It's very easy to turn a profit on a game show and people tune into them. I think people like being able to talk back to their TVs. It's one of the earliest forms of interactive television, as interactive as talking to your TV can get. People like shouting answers at the TV and people like that sense of, oh, I knew the answer to that. I would have done well. I would have won this game. People like that feeling. I want to ask you, though, about how complicated it is to even devise a game show format. I mean, that clever Merv Griffin, despite how simple or goofy the end result appears, because I was reading the Wheel of Fortune rules on Wikipedia, Tom, and there were so many clauses and subclauses and contingency plays. It's like reading the constitution of a brand new country. (laughs) My eyes were glazing over (laughs) developing a game show is a really complicated alchemy when an idea is perfected you don't want to screw with it and it takes a lot of work and a lot of refining and a lot of what are called run-throughs which is you just bring people into an office and you set up absolutely the root minimum of what you need to execute the game and you play it over and over again and you look for flaws you look for things that don't work right you look for pocket rules which is a term that a friend of mine uses um who's been an executive who's worked on game shows he has this term called pocket rules for rules that aren't going to come up very often but it's a rule that's created because you noticed a problem when you were doing the run-throughs and this is a good way to patch over that problem just in case it comes up which is how like you said the rules for wheel of fortune seem very very long and very very intricate but the truth is most of what i said in that first explanation is everything you need to know about wheel of fortune But yeah, developing a game show can be really, really tricky. Um, You've got to make sure that the rules make sense. You've got to make sure that they're fair, that they're easily understood, that they're simple to explain. The first chance I ever had to contribute an idea to a game show, I was describing what I thought would be a good idea. And somebody cuts me off in mid-sentence and says, too many words. You have to assume that a lot of your viewers are only 50% paying attention. Little flaws come up like I'll give you an example of something to watch out for. Uh, Another friend of mine, Jason, refers to this as rich get richer rules. Without violating uh, too many NDAs, there was a game show in development and it since made it on the air. But when it was first in development, one of the rules that this game was going to have was every time somebody got three correct answers in, in a row, they would get bonus points which sounds good. It's a way to reward good game playing. You get extra points if you give three correct answers in a row. 
the problem that they zeroed in on right away was if you have a contestant who is doing really, really well at the game, they're racking up points for their correct answers, but then they're also getting that bonus over and over and over again because they keep giving all those correct answers. So it's a bonus on top of all the points that they're already getting. On the other hand, if you have a contestant who's struggling a little bit, they're falling further and further and further behind. So that was a problem with the rich getting richer. You were giving bonus points to people who did not need bonus points. And meanwhile, the contestants who really could use a bonus here, they had no shot at the game. So those are the kinds of things you have to look at when you're developing a game show format is, is it fair? Does a person still have a shot at it late in the game? Is it interesting enough to watch somebody stay in the game even if they're doing poorly? And will a viewer talk to their television? That's the biggie. If you have a show where people talk back to their TVs, you have something there. It's not for sure going to be a hit, but that's the first thing you need to look at is will people talk? This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box 
while your subscription is active. I have, um, Adam, some detailed wheel-based questions. Number one, the fact that you have got a space on the wheel where you can go bankrupt, how important is that? That is a crucial thing for uh, Wheel of Fortune because... That's the big risk. When you're just playing hangman on a piece of paper, you solve that puzzle the moment you have the answer. There's no reason not to. Wheel of Fortune has this built-in incentive for contestants to keep going even if they know the answer. You win money for every consonant you uncover. If you solve the puzzle now, you're missing out on an extra couple of thousand dollars maybe, so you keep going. Now, the magic of the bankrupt space is that's the risk. It's not just... Here, have more money. Here, have more money. Here, have more money. Yeah, you can keep playing. You can keep trying to rack up that money, and your odds are pretty good. There are only three penalty spaces out of 24 wedges, so you have a one in eight shot of hitting something bad. That's the thing that levels it is, oh, man, you may get hurt on that next spin. That's what gives everybody a shot at it. Wheel-based question number two, Adam. How important is the clicking? (laughs) We had the home game, and the home game had a cardboard spinner, but I remember making that sound with my lips whenever I would spin the cardboard spinner because that sounded right to me. If you look at an episode from 1975 and then you look at an episode from 1985 and then you look at an episode from 1990, you notice that somewhere along the way, the wheel got louder. And I've never had a chance to ask anyone at the show this, but I think that's on purpose. I think they've put a mic there or I think they've started doing something with the way that wheel is constructed to make that wheel louder for the purpose of that noise. I think they know that the noise is part of the experience. My final wheel-based question, Katie. Adam, does the wheel only turn one way? And if it were turned the (laughs) other way, what would happen? Chaos in the streets. Uh, I think they would have to close schools the next day if the wheel (laughs) turned the other way. Now, the wheel does turn both ways. The contestants are told to spin it clockwise and that is part of the rules of the game you have to spin clockwise and it's one of those rules like you said in reading the constitution of wheel of fortune it's one of those rules that's there but they don't bother explaining it on the show but you do notice over the years everyone is spinning it the same way i'm wondering adam what was your path to working on wheel of fortune because that must have been like entering nirvana (laughs) i worked at wheel of fortune for one season i was there for uh, their 25th season And my journey to that was I had a chance to come out to Los Angeles. It was something I'd been thinking maybe I should do someday, but I was a great big chicken about it. I finally had the chance to move out and I said, "Okay, I'll give myself three months and I'll see if I can land in this in the game show world. The first thing I did in Los Angeles was I went to the agency of a guy named Fred Westbrook. Fred was an agent, and he had started off as just being a fan of game shows. He had obsessively collected publicity stills of game show hosts since he was a kid, and it was a hobby that he maintained well into adulthood. And at one point, his collection grew to something like 30,000 photos of game show hosts from all the shows that they had done. I cold called him one day and I said, I have photos of Art Fleming, the original host of Jeopardy, that I promise you, you don't have. These are photos you've never seen. (laughs) And he made an appointment with me on the spot and said, be at my office. Fred was so delighted that I handed him photos of a game show host that he hadn't seen before that he picked up the phone immediately and said, I know you need somebody at Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, I've got somebody to send over to meet. Uh, so you've got an appointment with this guy tomorrow. And he hangs the phone and turns to me and says, all right, you've got a job interview tomorrow at Wheel of Fortune. 
Okay. I worked in the prize department at Wheel of Fortune for one season, and my job was to cold call hotels and cold call airlines and get them to give us free airline tickets and free uh, vouchers for hotel stays. And we would put together vacation packages that way to offer us prizes on the show. I was let go due to a budget cut, and I look back on it. And to be honest, I'm not a natural salesman, and it's essentially a sales job. And I think what happened was I kind of sucked at the job, and everyone just everyone liked me enough that they didn't want to say that, so they made up a thing about a budget cut. Because the thing is, it was a budget cut, but then the next season the show introduced a million dollar prize in their bonus <laughs> round. So I'm like, okay, you, yeah. yeah, you're not having budget problems. I find that hard to believe, though, Adam, that you weren't excellent at that job because you have so much enthusiasm for it. I can just imagine you just being this evangelical figure on the phone. <laughs> going, you want to do this. This is the best life you'll ever lead, giving us your freebies. You mentioned the hosts as we've been talking about this. How important are the hosts to Wheel of Fortune? Hosts are important because hosts are what give a game show flavor. The original two hosts on Wheel of Fortune were Chuck Woolery and Susan Stafford. And Chuck was this handsome young country singer who didn't have broadcasting chops. And in those days, editing was done on game shows as little as possible because how expensive it was to edit in that era. So game shows, even though they were pre-recorded, were treated as if they were live broadcasts. Whatever happened in the studio was what aired, mistakes and all. And Chuck Woolery made lots and lots and lots of mistakes as host. He would forget whose turn it was or he would lose track of some other part of the game. But the thing is, he was charming as hell whenever he screwed up and he had a sense of humor about himself. Whenever he made a mistake, he would call attention to it and make something of the fact that he screwed up. And that appealed to people. It it made him very, very likable. And then the original letter turner was a woman named Susan Stafford. The original idea was that somebody offstage with a push-button console would operate the puzzle board. When they got close to time to shoot the pilot, they realized that they weren't going to have the wiring for that finished in time. So they just called a modeling agency and said, send somebody over here to turn the letters on this pilot we're shooting. Susan Stafford comes in and... NBC liked the pilot the way it was, and they were like, no, 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 let's make this part of the show. Let's keep the model and just have her turn the letters. And what Susan brought to that show was this high energy level that she could not keep bottled up. She would do a light jog and she would do a spring in her step jump as she was walking across the puzzle board to turn letters. She would dance when they played the incidental music for the pilots. She would pantomime reactions to right and wrong answers. Uh, She would shrug her shoulders when somebody guessed a wrong letter. So that was what Susan brought to the show. It was this really distinctive energy level. Wasn't there an early host, Ed Burns, who was drunk on a pilot? Well, once they got past Shopper's Bazaar, because Chuck Woolery hosted Shopper's Bazaar, by the time they streamlined it into Wheel of Fortune, they decided, let's shoot more pilots and see if it works. They take pilots hosted by Chuck Woolery, and they take pilots by Ed Burns. Ed Burns, in his own autobiography, so we're not slandering the man here when we say this, Ed Burns admits that he showed up to the studio drunk when he shot his pilot. And apparently what cost him his job was Merv Griffin saw him pacing back and forth backstage and going A-E-I-O-U, 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 like reciting the vowels to himself so he wouldn't forget which letters were the vowels. That struck Merv as a little odd. And when you see the pilots that he hosted, the thing that jumps right out at you, you don't get to see him chanting A-E-I-O-U to himself. But what you do see is when the wheel spins, he goes, Wee! <laughs> Along with the spinning of the wheel. You've got a click clack. You don't need a wee. 
<laughs> I like a wee. I like a wee. So, yeah, that was uh, that was the problem with Ed Burns. Uh, and so that's why he didn't get the job. And so it ended up being Chuck and Susan. And how did we get to the famous Vanna White and Pat Sajak that we have today? Chuck and Susan both left the show eventually. Chuck left the show in 1981. And he's talked about it over the years, and Merv Griffin talked about it over the years, and it's one of those things where you hear both of their accounts of why Chuck Woolery quit, and you think to yourself, okay, somebody's lying, because they tell completely different versions of the meeting where Chuck gave his notice. But the one thing that Merv and Chuck agree on that we can say for sure is Chuck quit because of money. That, we know that for sure. He wasn't happy with what he was being paid. Chuck was replaced by Pat Sajak, who was the local weatherman for the NBC station in Los Angeles. And Pat had been on game show producers' radars for a few years. He had hosted some unaired pilots for other producers that didn't sell. And meanwhile, he was still the weather forecaster in Los Angeles. Now, weather forecaster in Los Angeles is the single most boring (laughs) job that you can have in television because it's the weather in Los Angeles. Looking ahead to the 10-day forecast, we're expecting it to be sunny and warm. So Pat developed this reputation for doing really odd things during his weather forecasts. And he since admitted that the reason he did odd things during his weather forecast was just so he wouldn't get bored to death. And Merv said the thing that he noticed one night that kind of made him say, I got to pick up the phone and call this guy. Pat is giving the weather report and Merv notices he has an enormous bandage on one side of his face. And he's saying, oh, that's Merv's thing. That's really awful. I can't believe they couldn't cover that up somehow. When they come back from commercial, Pat is still there giving the weather forecast. But the bandage is now on the other side of his <laughs> face. Just something Pat did to amuse himself that night. And that got Merv's attention and said, we should call this guy. Now, fun fact, before Merv called Pat Sajak and offered him the job, do you know who NBC was considering offering Wheel of Fortune to? No. They wanted David Letterman to host Wheel oh. of Fortune, which would have been a butterfly effect for all of American television. But yeah, if, if NBC was going to offer the job to David Letterman. And then Merv saw Pat Sajak do this thing with a bandage on his face. And he was like, that's my guy. That's my game show host. This this combination, Adam, that, that comes together. I mean, just to try and put this into context, when the show peaks in 1986, which is where we think Billy is mentioning it at this point in the song, it's pulling in 40 million viewers five times a week, which is the highest rating of any syndicated TV show in history at that point. Those are crazy numbers. In the 1980s, more people watched Wheel of Fortune on an average night than saw the movie Star Wars in 1977. I'm curious because you're in Great Britain and I know that television is different over there. Do you know what syndicated television is or do we need to explain that? I don't really know what it is, Adam. Okay, so first of all, Wheel of Fortune premiered in 1975 and it was on NBC in their daytime schedule. And daytime TV operated in increments of 13 weeks that time. If a network bought your show, you produced 13 weeks of shows. And if they were happy with the ratings, they ordered 13 more weeks. And if they were still happy with your ratings, they ordered 13 more weeks. So you had to deliver constant results with your ratings to stay on the air. So by 1983, Wheel of Fortune had been on the air for eight years. And that sounds like, oh, well, then it must have been a huge success. It was successful. It got good ratings. But basically, Wheel of Fortune was successful enough to stay on the air every 13 weeks when it came up. But by 1983, it was probably the most unremarkable show to have stayed on the air for eight years. And then in 1983, something happened. And then this is where the next lesson in American TV comes from. So there's the three networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. And those stations are comprised of affiliates, which are the individual TV stations in cities across America. There are also independent stations throughout the country, and independent stations are what they sound like. They are stations that operate without a network overseeing them. 
Syndication is a means of selling programs to independent stations. What syndicated television is, is the company that makes a television show, instead of putting it on a network, they dispatch salesmen to crisscross the country and go to these local stations or hold conventions where these local station managers will come to, and they will sell television shows to those individual local stations. So you get 150 stations individually to sign up for your show, and that's enough for viewers across America to see it, but it's not on any one network. Syndicated television is an absolute goldmine. If you sell a TV show to NBC, NBC pays a licensing fee for your series, and the licensing fee is enough to cover the entire cost of making the show, plus a little extra money, and that's your profit. And then NBC sells commercials during the show, and that's how they make their money back from the licensing fee. In syndicated television, you collect a licensing fee from every individual station. So if you sell it to 150 stations, you collect 150 licensing fees for paying for your show. Some of the shows that syndicates are selling were original content, but many shows that syndicates were selling starting in the 1970s were what were called nighttime versions of daytime shows. And what's the difference between the day? Like, what was nighttime Wheel of Fortune like as compared to daytime Wheel of Fortune? Is it like after dark and people have martinis and tuxedos? (laughs) Bigger prizes and bigger payoffs, and you made it look nicer. Pat and Vanna had a different wardrobe for the nighttime version. It it wasn't formal, but they had nicer outfits. Uh, Vanna wore evening gowns on the nighttime show instead of just a nice dress on the daytime show. And I did want to back up and get into the the history of Vanna White because she ended up replacing Susan Stafford, who left to become a nurse. And how is it that Vanna White even got selected? This is one of my favorite stories in all of television because it's so ridiculous. Merv Griffin has a theory that viewers, men and women alike, are drawn towards not just attractive women, but attractive women with large heads. And Vanna White got the letter-turning job because she had the largest head of any of the women who auditioned for Wheel of Fortune. She has a a very lovely, (laughs) toothy smile, but I hadn't noticed particularly that she had a huge, like, pumpkin-shaped bonce. (laughs) Merv swore by this. And again, Merv Griffin is a billionaire, so okay, we'll just play along with this. And then Wheel of Fortune becomes the biggest hit ever with Vanna White turning the letters. And yeah, and then I I remember living through something called Vanna Mania. What was the big whoop about her, aside from her ginormous head? (laughs) Certain people just give off an air. And there is something about Vanna that people just like. Uh, There's just something she gives off a vibe. And it's this intangible thing. But there's something very likable. And there have been some think pieces written over the year. There was a columnist who said, you know, as many strides as there have been for women in the workplace and equality for women, there's this theory that deep down there's something in women that still want to be Miss America above all else. I don't completely agree with that theory, but that's one of the think piece theories that was out there was women still like the idea of just being this gorgeous woman. I think another aspect of her popularity is the fact that she's quite enigmatic because she doesn't talk. You know, like you don't know (laughs) anything about her. She's a cipher. You can just impose. I would disagree with that. And here's why I would disagree with that. At the end of the show, and again, this is part of one of those secret ingredients for Wheel of Fortune. At the end of the show, they set aside about 30 seconds to a minute for Pat and Vanna to just have a friendly chat and that doesn't sound like much but it's a five day a week show and it's been on the air for 40 years 40 years with 30 seconds a night to chat is a lot of time to get to know somebody and so we have gotten to know van over the years we've got to know what she does in her spare time she likes to knit she got married she had a couple of kids by all indications if you follow what all three of them post on social media she has two adult kids now and has a fantastic relationship with both of them You look at Vanna now, and the thing about her is 
There are no scandals. There are no horror stories about the way that Vanna treats waitresses. You never hear anything about her. And it's not enigmatic. It's just there's nothing there's nothing nasty to say about her. She now has this line of yarn, Vanna's yarn. A friend of mine who knits as a hobby swears by her yarn. So for whatever that's worth, (laughs) I've been told by an expert that Vanna White's yarn is the best yarn on the market. And you see her doing guest appearances on RuPaul's Drag Race as kind of this living legend. This is the thing about Vanna, and this is what I think of when I think of Vanna White now. I was in the audience for a wheel taping once. This was long after I worked there. While I'm waiting in line with the rest of the people who are waiting to go in there to be part of the audience, I was next to a family that had a young adult man and it was it was clear that he was very autistic and during the taping breaks at wheel of fortune vanna will come over to the audience uh, during these breaks in the action and she'll take questions from the audience the mom and the son stand up and mom does most of the talking and the son talks for about 30 seconds in the way that he's able to and just after taking that in vanna in this very gentle voice says would you like a hug And he said, yes, I'd like that. And Vanna goes over and hugs him. That will always be what I think of when I think of Vanna White now. She sounds fantastic. I think uh, Mother Teresa needs to be bumped off that pedestal. (laughs) And we put Vanna White there. Okay, Adam, so that is the presenters of the show. I would like to briefly know about the contestants and how they are found. And I would like you to explain, please, exactly what the Wheelmobile is. The Wheelmobile is a touring bus that carries scaled down elements of the show and they do events across the country where a substitute Pat and Vanna perform for a crowd and people will be selected at random from the crowd to come up and play Wheel of Fortune. And there are people there in charge of picking contestants and they are keeping detailed notes of the people that they find interesting, the people that they liked who got pulled up on stage to play the game. And the people who get to play Wheel of Fortune as part of a Wheelmobile event are called back later and given a second audition. And what they're looking for is people who know the game, people who understand the game, people who just give off the best possible version of their true selves. They're not looking for anyone who puts on a performance because they can spot fakers. They, they look for anyone who's putting on a facade. And I uh, went to a Wheelmobile event in 2006, the year before I worked for the show, and I got called in for the second audition, and I bombed the second audition, so I was never a contestant on the show. No, here's what what went wrong, and I understand why the Wheel of Fortune people did this, but I wish they hadn't. They said, okay, we're going to give you each 30 seconds to talk about yourselves. You have 30 seconds to talk about yourselves. Don't say, I'm happy to be here today, because we're so tired of hearing that. Every contestant says that. So please don't say I'm happy to be here today. And what are you going to think about for the next 30 seconds? So I came up there. It was my turn to talk about myself. And the first thing I said, I'm happy to be here today. Uh So (laughs) that was the end of me. And what's so funny now is they've made the audition process easier because they do it online. If you go to Wheel of Fortune's website, they have information about how to be a contestant. And they ask you to submit some written information. One of the lines in Wheel of Fortune's instructions for how to try out for the show online is, do not tell us that being on Wheel of Fortune is on your bucket list. Wheel of Fortune seems to be culture and technology proof in its long, long existence. It never seems to become irrelevant or outpaced by developments on social media, TikTok. What's the secret of its success? One of the things that Wheel of Fortune has always been brilliant and diligent about is that they are absolutely on top of things with new technology. In the 1980s, when home computers really took off, there was a Wheel of Fortune computer game. When the Nintendo Entertainment System, the first one, came along, the first game shows to be adapted for the Nintendo Entertainment System were Wheel and Jeopardy. 
every time a new console is released, a new video game console, there is a Wheel of Fortune home game for that console. When Alexa was introduced, there was a Wheel of Fortune game introduced for Alexa. There's a Wheel of Fortune app for your smartphone. Every time there has been an advancement in technology since 1983, that advancement in technology has included an adaptation for Wheel of Fortune. And what that means is, as old as the show is, it doesn't feel like a relic. They've been amazing at attaching themselves to these changes in technology, so it's always a product of right now. I am speaking firsthand when I say there are adults who watch Wheel of Fortune because it's the thing that it was when they were a kid. And people in the TV industry don't like game shows because they skew older in the ratings reports. You hear people say uh, game shows are for old people. Grandparents watch Wheel of Fortune. And as somebody who works in game shows for a living now, thank God that grandparents watch game shows. Because do you know how often you hear contestants now say things like, I watch this show with my grandparents. There are people who've watched this show their whole lives. And the reason they're still watching it today in their 20s and in their 30s and their 40s is because they watched it with their grandparents. It sounds like it's cultural glue. So here's a a sobering question to finish on. Do you think Wheel of Fortune will end when Pat Sajak and Vanna White end? I do not think so, because we've gone a little bit into the history and we've explored the fact that Pat and Vanna are not the original hosts. You know, it's it's easy to say Pat and Vanna can't be replaced. And that's very, very true. Pat and Vanna cannot be replaced. But the host and hostess of Wheel of Fortune can be replaced. It's going to feel different. It's going to have a different flavor to it, like we've discussed. But Wheel of Fortune is still going to exist in some form. And people still watch that game. The star of the show is the game. So from that from that perspective, yes, Wheel of Fortune will go on. From another more capitalistic perspective, there's too much damn money in this show for people to just shut it down when it uh, when Pat and Vanna leave. Have you been to Las Vegas? Yes. Okay. Have you noticed how there are Wheel of Fortune logos absolutely everywhere you look in Las Vegas? Nobody told me that about Las Vegas, and it's the thing that I noticed right away is. You can't spit 10 feet in any direction without hitting a Wheel of Fortune logo because it's every slot machine in that city. So, I mean, it's going to be different. It's going to change. Television is definitely in a flux period right now where we don't know what television is going to look like in five years. But Wheel of Fortune, one way or another, will be a part of it. Adam Needeff, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you wouldn't mind, could you just sign off with one more spin of your own personal wheel, please? Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. 
As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. <laughs> Either your body parts are breaking. <laughs> is there a squirrel in the room, can't he? Cracking his nuts. It's correct. Some nuts are being cracked here. Or that is a, a very accurate depiction <laughs> of the Wheel of Fortune. I got such a kick out of Adam. I love people who are passionate about ridiculous things. Oh, no, no. <gasps> It's a very important thing, a very important thing. If you would like another podcast to listen to, you should check out Death of a Film Star. It tells the stories of the stars we lost too soon, the ones who spent their lives telling us stories on the big screen. Tom even wrote some of these, and there are episodes about Rock Hudson, Errol Flynn, and Edie Sedgwick. If you'd like to give it a listen, just search for Death of a Film Star wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with a story or a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media, we're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and the Twitters. Make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Next episode, Katie, we are going to ride, Sally, ride. Well, we're not talking about some kind of late night monkey business, which is what I think that song refers to. From Wicked we're, Wilson Pickett. Wicked Wilson Pickett. We're talking about a lady who went into outer space, Sally Ride. It's going to be a good one. Crowd Network. Place where you belong. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of. Uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? 
And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.